Okay, if you don't mind turning to 2 Thessalonians, so we're, we're going to figure out how I got to the title, Everlasting Consolation and Good Hope. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, please. We won't go over the whole chapter, but we'll just be picking it up in verse 13. It's going to be a short message, by the way, tonight with the weather and everything. I anticipated being kind of light here, so uh, it's uh, just so we can get everyone home safely with the weather. So Jackie's trying to tell me something there. I'm going to pray. Oh, I haven't forgotten. <laughs> Getting everybody a chance to turn it to 2 Thessalonians 2. <laughs> I've done this a little bit before, and I've got it in my notes, too. <clears throat> All right, if everyone is there, let us go before the Lord, please. Father, we thank you again for bringing us here, Lord, this evening amidst, amidst all of these storms and trials of life, Heavenly Father, and we thank you for... Lord, your presence among us. We thank you for this building. We thank you for so many things, Lord, for our homes that we get to go to after this, Lord, and just the warmth and provision that you've provided. And we pray for your blessing upon the evening, Lord. Give us wisdom to apply your word, we pray. We do want to say a special thanks for the team making it to Israel safely. Heavenly Father, and I pray that you would bless them there as well. And be with us, Lord, the remainder of this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, just doing verse 13 and to the end of the chapter. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So that's, that's how I got the title of this message. It's a, it's a reminder of two things, to stand fast, which we are called to do, But then also we have the blessed hope. We have everlasting consolation, knowing that this world isn't our home and that better things are to come, so to speak. And just a real quick summary of 2 Thessalonians 2 and part of 1 Thessalonians. Um, The two chapters together are very critical chapters, very important. Some of the summary points from 2 Thessalonians, it discusses the timing of the rapture, verse 1, where it talks about, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. And you'll see references back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in your Bible. So the two, cha- the two books together, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, are very important discussing the rapture. Also, it proves that the rapture or the harpazo is a real event. 1 Thessalonians 4 discusses it. There is a, a false, what I would call a false teaching out there that is saying that the rapture is a fairy tale and nothing that you can be believe nothing that you can believe but 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 states emphatically that the rapture is a real event as we're going to look at patterns in the scripture that discuss this and it also discusses the revealing of the antichrist and the abomination of desolation and finally it describes the punishment for those that reject the truth but then it finishes with the command to or the encouragement to stand fast and with the words of hope and everlasting consolation. One other encouraging verse I have is Matthew 16, 18. You all know it well. And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think I was thinking of this as this comment was made by Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, which our team is going to be at in a couple of days there in Israel. And I'll talk more about that. But I think that's why it's such an encouraging verse that the gates of, of Hades shall not prevail against it. But looking at our country, just in the past couple of weeks, we talked about this at the Tuesday morning study, and, and many of us have talked about it, just how our country and now four states are pushing for basically late-term abortion, bur- abortion all the way up until birth. You wonder how much more time until they pass a law where, you know, the baby could be two years old, three years old, five, whatever the case is. I mean, it's, it's basically child sacrifice, even in the womb, but then after the womb, too. It makes you wonder, and you see where everything is going. Uh, a variety of taxes. We're seeing this Green New Deal where it seems like they, they sort of want to tax us to death. New Jerseyans are very upset about the, the new rain tax where they're going to be taxing the rain that falls on their on their driveways and, and you're going to be now taxed for the amount of water that would be runoff from your driveway. And uh, worldwide, we're seeing like the French protests 14 weeks straight now and, and just things all around the world. We're seeing people group versus people group. Uh, and then there were just two things that happened this week. One was the, the turning away by a woman that we know, turning away from the Lord and the church, and, and uh, the, thing, the decision that she's going to make, we know her personally, just a full-on turning away, and it's going to be very destructive to her family, and it already is. And um, you know, I don't want to say any more about that, but just not, not, not attending this church currently, but someone that we know that has attended uh, church and had at one point been with the Lord, but uh, has, has turned the other direction, so to speak. And that was, that was on Monday. On Sunday, we went out to eat for a bite, and then afterward, we went to a bookstore, and um, right on the end case, there was all these books right on the end, very visible, children walking by and everything, where there were probably like 15 titles with the strongest possible curse words, and then just like one little asterisk or something blocking out one of the letters, but the strongest possible curse, curse word in the titles. And of course, we would think, do there need to be any books that have to have words like that in the titles? But then do there need to be 15, 17? And I, I called Jackie. I was like, Jackie, look at that. And then I went and spoke to an employee about it to pass it on to the manager. And that's the second time at that bookstore I've had to do that as well. So, and this is, this is just a regular old bookstore, but do we really need that? But it's a sign of where our society is. We're just getting desensitized to things that 25, 30 years ago wouldn't have been even, you know, even really been thought of. And so, but we're seeing that more and more. And so that's, but that's just this week. And then the things like abortion, that's just over the past couple of weeks. But all these things in the light of scriptures, we know that we're to, Stand fast. We do have to stand for righteousness. And I, I have been making phone calls regarding the abortion. I hope everyone has, too. The church is called to be a salt and a light. So I would encourage everyone as part of our standing fast and how Jesus said for us to be a salt. We need to be on the phone, and we need to be politically vocal. Books a Million, that was easy, talking, talking to managers and so forth and telling them, you know, that this is no longer a child-friendly place. I don't want my children walking right by that and seeing that. You know, that's easy, but calling your senators, calling your political officers, you know, calling and being on the phone repeatedly and, and being vocal is very important in this day and age. So it, the responsibility lies on the church. So we're, we're called to do that. And Paul here, but other places, says, stand fast. And Jesus says, 
if the salt loses its saltiness, it's only good to be thrown underfoot. So we need to be politically active. We need to be a voice in our country. And then at the same time, we also take comfort knowing the scriptures and knowing that the Lord is going to prevail in the end. So, Tuan, if you don't mind putting up the second screen, please. Back to Caesarea Philippi. So that's a neat place in Israel, and this is just a picture of it, just to kind of give you a visual. Um, I went in 2013, and our team will be seeing this as well. But it's hard to really appreciate what exactly it is or what it looks like until you've actually seen it. And so it's basically a, a cutout portion of the rock where Greek priests would do sacrifice of goats and possibly humans, just a horrible place. And this, was, this is known as the Gates of Hades. This is a, at least one place, and maybe there are other places where there were kind of these abominable sacrifices that were done by the pagan priests, but this is one place. But this is actually Caesarea Philippi where Jesus actually had the discussion with Peter, and Peter said, that that verse that I read regarding basically where Jesus was the, the Christ. And so that's why Jesus says, and I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But this used to be where there were pagan temples to all the Greek gods and all the pagan gods, all of this stuff, and, and so just a kind of really a horrible place. But this is where Jesus made the proclamation and was first called the Christ. And so his, his statement there is a challenge to all the, all the pagan gods, all these demon gods, basically, is what they are, Apollo and everybody else. This, this was specifically to Pan. The sacrifices here were mostly to Pan for the most part, but probably some of the other deities as well, some of the other Greek gods. But, but anyway, it's an interesting place, but it's, it's an encouraging scripture for us, knowing that in the end, with Jesus as the Messiah, the gates of hell will not prevail against that. Now, if you don't mind turning to Matthew 25, please, and it'll be all easy. We'll just be turning right several times here. You all know the, the parable very well. It's the parable of the ten virgins. Kind of critical to understand this parable, this and a lot of other parables, because this and all, not just, not just parables, but types and patterns in the Bible. Very important to understand all of these. So verses 1 through 13, Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the, the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So here we see this is a par parable. This is one of Jesus' teachings, saying the kingdom shall be likened to. And we see the five wise. We know that this is a, a type of the Holy Spirit with the oil. And then those that don't have the Holy Spirit, they have no oil. 
importantly, we see that it's at midnight as well, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and then the door was shut. So we see how many parallels there, there are. And when we kind of break this down, just really briefly, I know you all know it very well and have been through it, but we see a wedding picture, important to understand. Uh, a lot of the wedding in Scripture is very important to understand, and it, you could say it foreshadows the wedding supper of the Lamb as well. It's future events, but we'll talk about some of the parts in the Old Testament as well. But, but um, the wedding is certainly an important factor that you see a lot in the Scripture. The door is important as well, and we know that like Noah's Ark has a door. Also, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the history of Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot. We know that the door, it's interesting because the door was shut twice in that case, once by Lot when he closed the door behind him to try to speak to the men of Sodom. He closed it behind him, but then the door would have to be opened and Lot would actually have to be pulled inside by the angels, and then the door would be shut then. And when the door is shut by the angels, it stays shut, just like when the Lord shuts the door with the ark. So the door figures in very strongly, and you see that in the, in the parable of the ten virgins as well, you see that the door is shut. So that's, that's when there's, a little, a, there's too little too late. The door is shut for salvation, the rapture, depending on what you're looking at, but, but it certainly does happen. Also very important, this parable occurs at night as well. At midnight, in this case specifically, but we also know that the men of Sodom attacked the house at night, and you also see the true believers surrounded at night as well. So that's going to be a pattern foreshadowing things to come in the end times as well. So just sort of the true believers being surrounded. You could say it's happening in other parts of the world right now. People are, true believers are being marginalized, attacked, isolated. And from all sides, and so we're, we do. We are seeing it now, but it seems like it's going to be getting worse and worse as as the days go by. <clears throat> but also, we know Jesus comes as a thief in the night. So there are some there are some really interesting, really important things. But you look at all the critical points when you when you do a study like this. You look at all the critical points. You have the Passover. That's another major picture where you have things looking pretty desperate, and yet the Israelites leave at night. They had to take the unleavened bread, the bread of haste. They had to take everything and head out quickly and, and leave quickly at night. And you see these things again and again where um, the darkness represents the spiritual darkness and the spiritual blindness that's going on. But you see these very desperate situations like Lot as well where the darkness is surrounding, wickedness is all is abounding, and um, but then the one other thing that you often see is a rescue at night as well. And one critical teaching point is that you can't really base doctrine off of types or foreshadowing things like that. The the it's important to try to understand the patterns, but you do have to use the most direct scriptures to interpret the indirect ones. So. That's an important principle. The, the types and the patterns are all important, and they flesh out things that we see, but you still have to stick to the main doctrine to serve as your framework. And then you kind of fill in what you, what you see with the different types of, um, with the different patterns. Again, the Exodus is just a huge pattern that each of the different types can focus on different things. For example, Sodom and Gomorrah, that's associated with immorality. That was one of the main things associated with them. 
Noah was associated with violence. The violence was rampant uh, back in the days of Noah. With Joseph, we see other examples, different things being focused on. We see a seven-year famine. That's a foreshadowing of, the, of Daniel's 70th week in the scriptures. And you know, the, another time of spiritual darkness, a famine for the hearing of the word of the Lord, as the book of Amos says. So you see that seven-year pattern that's foreshadowed there with Joseph, but you see it again and again in Daniel. And Amos refers to things like that as well. Also with Joseph, you see um, <clears throat> a neat type that, that is um, important to us as well, but you see the direct dealing of Joseph with his brothers as a foreshadowing of Jesus dealing directly with Israel at that time. When sort of it gets, you know, latter part of Daniel's 70th week, you see we're going to see Jesus is going to deal directly with the Jews, and we know that from different places in scripture, but it's interesting because in the picture with Joseph, he actually sends his Gentile servants out just before he reveals himself. And we see that pattern again with basically with Jesus, with Jesus when he raptures the predominant, predominantly Gentile church, then he's going to reveal himself directly to Israel and Israel is going to turn to him as a nation, as a whole nation. So we know that from a number of different places in the scripture, but these, these examples and patterns in Scripture help us kind of flesh out and help us to see this from a multitude of angles. But the important thing that I want to stress is that when you, when you kind of discover or you uncover these repeating patterns, you're really establishing things that the Bible is, is talking about that are going to be future events. So that's, that's what's really important is that the Bible can actually be telling you something that happened historically and that can all be fulfilled and, and the things are all, you know, done. At least that's what you think. But then you can see that they're actually referring to future events as well. So that's what's so amazing about the Bible. There's no other book that's really going to do that at all. Now, if you could turn right, please, to Acts chapter 5. So in Acts 5, <clears throat> we're seeing the church is experiencing power. So we're going to see this pattern again and again a couple of other times. But the, ch the newly established church is really starting to, experiencing, starting to experience power. In verse 13, chapter 5 of Acts, it says that the people esteemed the apostles highly. So we see the re religious leaders becoming a bit jealous and unnerved at what's going on, seeing that the apostles are, are so highly esteemed by the people. So in verse 18, the high priest is filled with indignation and the apostles are thrown into prison. In verse 19, we see another nighttime rescue. So things are looking kind of bad for the apostles, not knowing what's going to happen, executed, whatever. And then, but then we see that the angel of the Lord or an, an angel of the Lord releases them so we see another nighttime rescue here, and then the apostles are able to go back to preaching. And so this is an example of believers, how one day believers are going to provoke the, the Jewish people to jealousy, so to speak. And, um, and I've read, and I think there's truth to it, that even with the, the rapture of the predominantly Gentile faithful church, that too will provoke Israel to jealousy in a sense. And many of the rabbis who have 
sort of gone along with the covenant of death that they end up making with the Antichrist, they're going to have to start reconsidering what they have done and is this Jesus really who he says he is? And I saw maybe a year ago that actually a group of rabbis, of Orthodox rabbis, actually said they were open to considering whether Jesus was really the Messiah or not. So there's some softening there, which is really neat. We, we want to get Israel saved. We want, we want the nations. We want Israel. We want everyone. But, <clears throat> but seeing Israel starting to turn more toward the Lord and reconsider Jesus is a, is a tremendous thing. Uh, a number of places in Scripture talk about that. But it seems to be that that is going to be part of the provoking Israel to jealousy in a sense where they're going to have to examine this covenant that they've made with the, or some type of a covenant with the Antichrist. Not sure what that's going to look like. But we even see that pattern here because in Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel recounts all the times that Israel has counted on a false Messiah. And then Gamaliel, he's like, well, you guys shouldn't fight against this because look what happened with this person, this person. You know, if this is from God, let it alone. And, you know, if it's not from God, it's going to fail. But but the same thing is going to happen again where people are going to, the Jewish people are going to have to reconsider and be like, hmm, maybe we should consider Jesus and, and what he says. So, so that's just a, another pattern there. But also we see the apostles being released at night and escaping at night. It's yet another nighttime rescue. There's one other interesting parallel that you notice in this chapter, which is the love of money and what a challenge it provides to the faithful church where there were parts of the church or parts of the apparent church that had a love of money that would lead them, you know, to fall away, so to speak. With Jesus himself, there was Judas who had a love of money, and then he would have end up betraying the Lord. Here in Acts chapter 5, just before this happens, you see the apostles have to deal with Ananias and Sapphira, so other people who have a love of money. And so then they, they have to be dealt with as well. It's going to happen again with the believing, with the faithful believing church. It'll happen again, which is the church of Laodicea, the prosperity gospel, everything that we're seeing now, it's going to happen again with that as well. And it's going to be something that happens just before, you know, before the end. It's going to be more and more of an issue. So there's a pattern there. And then uh, one other example from Acts, please, is Acts chapter 12. So here we see persecution from political leaders. We see that Herod kills James, which is John's brother, with the sword. So the Herod himself, being a type of the Antichrist, is he kills, he kills um, James, and then he imprisons Peter when he sees that it pleases the Jewish people. He imprisons Peter, and this is another Passover example as well. So... Here, you all know the story well, but here we see that Peter, again, is rescued in the night. Peter is rescued from the Roman guards, and you could, you could make a parallel there that Jesus is rescued from the Roman guards through the resurrection as well. A lot of these nighttime, nighttime things going on, I'm not sure what to make of all of it. I don't want to take them too far, but it, it is interesting. And also the Passover theme again here. Again, a, a woman tries to tell others that it's still Peter. They don't believe her just like the disciples don't believe when Jesus is risen as well. You see that as well. Herod being an interesting type of the Antichrist here, 
we see that he actually kills his own guards in a desperate m attempt to maintain control. So Herod here, kind of like a Hitler, even though things are, you know, for Hitler at, one, at a certain point during World War II, it was a lost cause, and yet he still maintained trying to fight just, just because he, I guess he couldn't fathom the thought of losing. And so same type of thing with Herod here where he actually kills his own guards trying to maintain control. He also seems to be attempting peace through controlling the food supplies, it says in verse 20, but that's something else that the Antichrist will end up doing. He'll be controlling food, and, and he'll be coming in the name of peace, but um, very much a picture of the Antichrist as well. But he will have to suffer divine judgment after he accepts worship. Same thing with the Antichrist, same thing as Herod here, where people say it's the voice of a god and not a man, and he doesn't, he doesn't correct them, and then that's it for him. So a few very interesting uh, parallels here. We see that the Israelites escape during Passover, we see Jesus being sacrificed at Passover. We see Peter um, also escaping at, pa at Passover as well. So all of these examples, Old Testament and New, are pointing a lot, a lot of different things out regarding the future. And the last one is the Song of Solomon. So that's Old Testament. You can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. We're just going to wrap it up with this. But this is an Old Testament example, but it's really almost kind of foundational to understanding some of these other passages and parallel themes like with the, um, the Ten Virgins and things like that. The Song of Solomon is really quite a book. And again, with the, with the Bible, there's no other book that could sort of, you would just read it superficially and think it's a love story. And yet it's telling us so much more as far as what's going on, it, it's actually telling us the future. So it's a foundational book to understand. It's Importantly, it's read at Passover. It's still read to this day. It's, it's the liturgical reading at Passover, Song of Solomon. So it's an important book to read. It's the story of the Shulamite woman with the way I kind of read it, and I'm still studying it. There's a lot I want to learn about this, but she seems to have kind of a divided heart and divided interests. Earlier on, like by chapter 3, she's still kind of interested in the bridegroom. And in chapter 4, we see the bridegroom speaking, and we see that the bridegroom is prepared to die for his bride. In Song of Solomon 4, 6, it says, Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh, and to the hill of frankincense. So we see the bridegroom preparing himself to die. He's being anointed with the, the myrrh, basically the mountain of myrrh. He's going there. But so he's prepared to do that for his bride. In chapter 5, however, it seems like the, the bride has a change of heart. So the bridegroom comes to her place, and he's calling her to come out to his garden. His hair is wet with the latter rain. I think you could, you could kind of imply that, that it's the, the latter rain there. And she's still in bed, and she doesn't really want to get out. And so it seems that he has come at an hour she did not expect. It's nighttime as well, so there's that, the pattern of the, the night as well. And she's slumbering and asleep, and she doesn't want to get her feet dirty. She's taking off her coat. You know, she says, how can I put, you know, how can I put that back on? 
So a lot of similar patterns here, the, the uh, ten virgins. So we see the bridegroom knocking at the door, just like Jesus says, he comes to knock as well, and there's the door again as well. So all of these patterns really repeat a lot. In verses 3 through 5 of chapter 5, she says, I have taken off my robe, how can I put it on again? I have washed my feet, how can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. So she finally makes up her mind to go, but by then it's too late. He's come and gone. She didn't recognize it. He came at an hour she didn't expect. She goes to go out, and she does go out, but suddenly she's the one with the myrrh on her. She's anointed for burial. This is a picture of the five virgins who missed the rapture. They weren't ready, and so it's too little too late. Same thing for much of the sort of lukewarm Laodicean church, whatever you want to call them, these people are going to end up missing the rapture. They're not going to be ready for the bridegroom to come, so to speak. So they're going to be unprepared, just as, as Jesus warns many times. So the bridegroom, he comes and goes. She goes out. She's covered in myrrh. Her hands are dripping with myrrh, it says. My fingers are with liquid myrrh. And then she goes out, and she's actually attacked. Same thing that happens to the to the false church, part of the harlot church, whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, Laodicean church, a lot of different names, but same thing that's going to happen. They're going to be basically set up for punishment. So the church that we're seeing now, uh, I was just reading some things, um, even the attack by, on Chris Pratt, you know, the actor, just um, for, I guess, sort of a, somewhat of a stance against homosexuality or something like that, and then a church group that's known for good music kind of went after him. I won't say which one, but if you, um, you know, you might see that in the news about Hillsong. Oh, sorry, shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> anyway, I don't trust any of those big churches. I hate to say it, but, but um, anyway, so that, that's what you can kind of see happening. And there, there's other things with, with them. You just kind of have to be careful. But we see this happening more and more. Um, so there's so much in this. And again, the, the Passover is, is a big part of this, this Song of Solomon being read at Passover. So when you speak to your Jewish friends, you can tell them it's more than a love story. It's very interesting to me. It's something I've really thought about a lot. So... Mary would have just heard the Passover being read there as Jesus was crucified. So when Mary went to the garden tomb, she would have just heard the Passover being read. So, or I'm sorry, the Song of Solomon being read at Passover. So how interesting is it that Mary actually, she's in the garden and she's clinging to Jesus when she realizes it's him. She thinks he's the gardener at first. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say Mary is almost kind of a picture of the faithful church clinging on to Jesus in the garden where he called her to be, so to speak. The, the false church, in a sense, didn't do that. But there's Mary, you know, doing what she should. I, you know, I don't think she was thinking about any of, the, any of the stuff of Song of Solomon after seeing that horrific scene. But, but there, there she is. And it, it's interesting to me, too, what I've been thinking about is just how, you know, Eve was a woman in the garden, and she eats from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then... You know, through her and Adam, it spreads rebellion and death. And, that, and then yet you have Mary, a woman in the garden. She goes after the Lord Jesus, Jesus being the Messiah, the Messiah being a, a type of, of the tree of life, as the Proverbs say. 
So it, it's just very interesting, you know, kind of two women in the garden, one going after the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin kind of comes in through Adam that way. But then you have Mary clinging on to the Messiah, the tree of life. You know, I suppose if Eve theoretically had eaten out of the tree of life, you know, Adam and Eve, you know, we would be better off in a sense. But it, it's just a very interesting thought overall. So this is the abundant life to me is, is um, you know, just, just knowing the word of God, having the peace. I'm so thankful for Pastor Tim, you know, encouraging us to be joyful. That's something that I've really found in my 50 years and, and studying like so much stuff throughout the world. I have to be intention, intentional about being joyful. I find the more that you know and you see the way the world is going, you, you could get very stressed and then take it out on your family and stuff like that, but that's not what we're called to do. We're called to understand the times, absolutely, but I like reminders about being joyful, and we know that the Lord is going to win at the, in the end as well. We have to know what the signs mean. When the first coming of the Messiah occurred, we see that Herod, Herod was disturbed. All of Jerusalem was, they were distressed and disturbed. They saw the signs but they didn't know how to interpret the signs. So that's the big difference. There were some that were kind of in on it, and they started to understand the shepherds, Joseph, Mary, you know, the wise men, stuff like that, the, the folks working at the temple. The same thing is going to happen again at the second coming of the Messiah. The, um, it's going to be a smaller remnant, but they're going to be faithful. They're going to understand the signs. They're going to understand how to interpret them, even while the world is more and more distressed and disturbed. But now is the time to preach. Jesus warns of a time when it's going to be too dark to preach. So we have to work now. Uh, again, the encouragement of the gates of hell shall not prevail. Uh, another verse I've been thinking about with our team being out in Israel is Matthew 10.23. And you guys can, can chew on this one. I, I think taking it point blank is the best thing to do. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing verse. But Jesus says, For assuredly, I say to you, you will have not gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So that's an amazing verse. I'll read it again, Matthew 10, 23. So he says, for assuredly, so he's saying it's definite, it's going to happen this way. For assuredly, I say to you, you will have not gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So it's... it's. Uh, illegal to preach the gospel in Israel. It's, it's kind of forbidden, but I'm sure hoping our team gets some opportunities to, to preach the word over there because theoretically this sounds like what Peter talks about where you can hasten the return of the Lord. You can hasten the coming of the Lord by preaching the gospel and being, you know, being faithful like that. But that is quite a verse. And uh, the last verse that I'll read is Isaiah 28.6. In that day the Lord of hosts shall be strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. That is turning out to be one of my favorite verses. That I had to kind of think about that, like what exactly does that mean? But I think when the, the battle gets so desperate and it's no longer at the battlefield, but it's threatening to come into the city, the Lord of hosts will be strength that, to those that turn back the battle at the gate. So he's going to be strength to us as long as we're faithful to him, and, and we'll certainly do our best to do that. So um, with that, we're going to close in a worship song, um, if, if it works. Just a, a pretty cool song. I have to, 
say I'm uncomfortable even doing any song, especially if I don't know the church. I think Bethel Church might do this one, but it's actually Zach Williams singing it in a prison. I'm not comfortable with, you know, recommending or promoting any any music because it's such a seduction can come through that. However, it's it's neat seeing the group sing with the prisoners and, you know, almost sort of the outcasts of, of society in a sense, you, if you looked at it the way we look at it. But when you look at it at face value, I mean, we're all outcasts. We that are Christians, you know, we're, we're no better than the people in prison, honestly. We, we're no better than anyone else. And so it's neat because these guys are actually really worshiping the Lord. And you could, you know, in a sense, I see more wisdom in them just truly being joyful, worshiping the Lord than some of the so many wealthy people, wealthy politicians, so many other people that look like they've got it all together and yet they have no need for the Lord. These people are broken and they know they know they've sinned. These are the modern day, you know, Mary Magdalene's, the modern day Zacchaeus, you name it, uh, Matthew the tax collector. These are the the modern day versions of people who just realize they need the Lord and they're not too proud to admit it. So anyway, it's a neat song. We'll do that and then I'll, I'll come on back up. I hope you guys have, have heard it before. <clears throat>
Stephen for manning everything back there. So thanks. Love that song. Been listening to it like a couple times for a day for the past week. It's a great one. So I've been telling Jackie about it, but we still don't have internet at our house. So it's like, oh, I'll just play it at church. <laughs> but actually, good reminder too, going into that prison, if you can make the time, see Patrick, you know, it's just a great blessing, you know, especially seeing how many people there, you know, seem to have come to the Lord at one point or another and, you know, whether they were pretty hardened criminals before they went in and then and then got right with the Lord. You know, it's it's amazing. With that, let's go before the Lord, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time in your word, and I pray that it would be a blessing to each person here. I do pray for safety and protection for everyone heading home, Lord. Bless our time uh, with our families this evening. May the Lord bless and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.